Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. All righty, the voice of Dan McCarty bringing us into our latest podcast episode here on the Cattleman's Call. I'm Lane Nordland, and as we continue our fall work, shipping calves continues across Montana, where I'm broadcasting from today, sending them down to feedlot country. A busy time for cattlemen and women, no doubt, out across the countryside. And, you know, there's a lot of things on producers' mind as of late. We got the economy, we have drought, and also we have... uh, uh, foot and mouth disease on a global scale. Of course, we don't have that here in, in the United States, and, and that is because of a lot of hard work that has been going on for nearly 100 years of keeping the United States FMD free. But that's going to be the focus of our conversation today, how biosecurity measures on your operation at our ports, at our airports, is just vital uh, because that would be a huge economic impact uh, for our cattle industry. So joining us here today is Dr. Julia Herman, one of the in-house veterinarians at NCBA. And uh, Dr. Herman, how are things going uh, there in Denver today? Hi, Lane. Thanks for having me on. And Colorado is just beautiful right now. The leaves are still changing. So that's uh, that's always nice to have. Generally, they're gone by now. So I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> our, our, our leaves, the wind hasn't been blowing quite as much up here in Montana as it was last year at this time. So we're kind of enjoying those golden leaves before a windstorm, no doubt comes through as well. But, and we got precipitation in the forecast this weekend. So I'm crossing awesome. my fingers that this cheatgrass <laughs> pops up a little bit and the, and the cows and horses have a little bit to keep them going out in the pasture a little longer than normal. And Dr. Herman, of course, you, uh, I got your uh, your your doctorate there at the at Colorado State University in veterinary science. So, what is it? Uh, what's it been like though, being uh, on the forefront of especially biosecurity measures when we're looking at FMD? You know, uh, Lane, transitioning from I I was teaching at the vet school at Colorado State prior to joining NCBA, and so taking that teaching background and really applying it to a a separate, or it's a different audience. I'm teaching very similar things, but teaching it to producers and then also incorporating the veterinary world into what we're doing. Uh, It's been uh, been a fun challenge, and I've got to meet a lot of great people and have uh, some great experiences, as we're going to talk about here in a minute. You know, and and one thing, aside from our our conversation around uh, uh, foot and mouth disease, though, is uh, that need for veterinarians, large animal veterinarians in rural America. Have you seen an uptick in enrollment, not only at Colorado State University, but in our our, our vet schools across the nation uh, with youth trying to get more involved in the especially that large animal vet, are, are we helping solve the problem of this rural shortage of veterinarians? Oh, that's a great question. And it's, uh, it's complicated, as you can imagine, because a lot of it comes from uh, getting, getting kids interested at a younger age, making them uh, aware of the opportunities that veterinary medicine or any other, I mean, honestly, animal scientists, animal research, uh, animal science research, uh, jobs that they can go into that can help agriculture. So I think if that's part of it, I think um, another challenge we have, at least I saw at the vet school, I had a number of students who were gung-ho on being a large animal veterinarian and they they got into a rotation where they just learned something new and they it was exciting to them and it wasn't large animal medicine anymore. And so um, it's hard to tell them like, we need you in large animal medicine, but we know that your passion is elsewhere. And so, uh, there's that aspect to it. And then you talked about economic things, uh, 
that ranchers are dealing with, but veterinary veterinarians also uh, battle those type of uh, topics too. And so it's multi it's multifaceted, and uh, all vet schools are really trying to recruit more uh, people into that rural medicine. Uh, but it really comes from uh, like all all of those different aspects of uh, the livestock industry really need to come together to support those veterinarians to try to get them into that role. Uh, as far as are we moving in the right direction? Uh, I think so. Um, it's hard to know. I mean, about we we estimate about 70% of the veterinary students every year go into small animals. So we we have a smaller crop to, to influence. But um, I know that all the veterinary schools that I collaborate with are are working to really set those students up uh, for the best success. And um, I think that's what we continue to continue to do. And I know one trend that we are seeing uh, from our animal science department at Montana State University, I'm on their uh, Animal Range Science Advisory Committee, is uh, uh, so many more uh, uh, female uh, veterinarian candidates going into vet school. I think that's a great opportunity as well. And, and honestly, I think there's more uh, uh, women going into vet school than we are seeing men, especially at a Montana State's program into that yep. whammy program uh, with Washington State as well. Am I, am I correct in that analysis? Yeah, so the the number of uh, women going uh, getting accepted into vet school and becoming veterinarians that actually started shifting in uh, more women. I think in like uh, the mid mid to late '80s is when we started seeing more and more women. But yeah, right now uh, I, I'm going to stick with that 70% estimate. But that's about what it is. 70% of veterinary students out there are women uh, going into vet med, and so um, there are. I mean, uh, I think the Future is, future is bright for all veterinary medicine, but I think I've met some uh, some wonderful students, both uh, male and female, going into large animal medicine. So I'm pretty excited about the new colleagues that I'm going to have here in a few years. Well, and we need those veterinarians, of course, just for our daily operations to be successful in our animal health on our farms and ranches. But also they play a key role in our discussion today about biosecurity and animal disease and traceability when it comes to tracking these uh, diseases worldwide. And uh, I, I should point out that you recently passed your board exams to become a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Preventive Medicine, which means you you are uh, board certified in areas of preventative medicine how is this giving you an opportunity to, to really be on the national or on the global stage excuse me in our conversation of preventing disease like foot and mouth disease uh yeah so this is um so when veterinarians get board certified it basically means we're specialized in some area and so my area of specialization is preventive medicine so that's anything from infectious disease to public health to food safety and uh if our listeners know anything about our beef quality assurance program that fits with everything that we are teaching within our beef quality assurance program we're really trying to uh encourage those preventive uh preventive measures so that our animals don't get sick they produce better and they provide a safe uh, a safe product in the end and so um honestly i think my experience uh my previous experience working in the infectious disease realm, I studied brucellosis in bison out of Yellowstone. You're very familiar with <laughs> very that. Very familiar. Uh, so that was my master's project. And so my, uh, my background has really built on all of this infectious disease and biosecurity measures. And uh, 
that that built me up to uh, take this exam and set me up for success because of the very practical uh, experiences that I that I have had here at NCBA and, and in my previous previous jobs. Well, congrats on that certification. I, I, I know that that is years of hard work that go into that. And, and so hats off to you for, for that and, and, continue, and continuing, of course, uh, uh, to, to really on this, on this level, you're being a voice and an educator on all these things, but you're also boots on the ground. Uh, I, I know that you traveled to Uganda uh, back in 2020. Let's talk about that trip and, and, and what was the mission of it and, and what was it like being there and seeing different uh, animal science techniques on the ground there. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah, February 2020, uh, before the world shut down, uh, we were in Uganda for what uh, it's called a real-time training course. And so animal or animal science professionals, animal health professionals from from North America were specifically invited out to do this real-time training course. And uh, it means that we were in Uganda during a foot and mouth disease outbreak, and we actually got to learn how an endemic country, so endemic means there's that the disease is always present. Um, so the so the producers and the government they all have to just uh, manage the manage the disease as it fluctuates throughout the population. Um, but we got to go to that we got to go to Uganda and work with veterinarians from Uganda, learn from them how they handle an outbreak situation, and uh, try to extrapolate. How, like the lessons that they learned, what would happen if it if it did get into the into the United States, the ag, the ag industry in Uganda is uh, similar but very different than the U.S. Uh, at, at least specific to the livestock industry, they have a very pastoral system, and so what that means is there's not a lot of fences. There's uh, most people don't own land. They uh, the herdsman stays with the herd as they're moving towards food and water sources. So there's a lot of commingling of different herds at those water and feed sources. Uh, and you can imagine uh, there's a lot of wildlife in Uganda that also play a role in the transmission of foot and mouth disease. Um, so uh, the entire experience, um, it was hosted by uh, Texas A&M University, the AgriLife Research and the School of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. And we did this in collaboration with the European Commission for the Control of Foot and Mouth Disease. And so uh, EUFMD, or the uh, the second one that I said, um, their entire mission is to go around the world and teach producers, veterinarians, animal health professionals how to identify disease, uh, foot and mouth disease, test for it, and try to prevent it from happening again. And so we were really fortunate to work with these professionals who do this, I mean, literally on a daily basis in multiple countries and learn from them uh, to figure out how we can, again, take those lessons back to the U.S. if foot and mouth disease ever gets into the country. Now, I know it was 1929 is when the U.S. eradicated foot and mouth disease. And so when did it break out in Uganda and how, how fast did it spread? Yeah. So, um, Uganda, the first time that I saw that they found uh, foot and mouth disease was back in 1958, I think. Um, so back in the fifties. So it's been there for a very long time and they have, uh, they basically have, um, varying degrees of outbreaks on the depending on the year mm-hmm. uh so 
even though you have an endemic disease that's there all the time, you can still have an epidemic. And so that it's an increase in the disease in the number of F foot and mouth disease cases uh, above what is expected. And so that's what we 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 got to go, we got to be in Uganda when one of those epidemics was happening in a specific region of the country. Now, what are some of the symptoms that cattle exhibit when they get FMD for, for our, our listeners that aren't too familiar with it, or it's been a few years since we took animal science class? Sure. Uh, well, so foot and mouth disease, um, and I didn't, I didn't introduce this before. So foot and mouth disease is the most contagious viral disease in the, in the world for, uh, for two-toed animals. So, uh, so anything from cows to pigs to goats and sheep, different types of wildlife, all of those can get it. Um, it's not a public health concern. So animals who are infected with this disease, the meat and milk is still uh, safe, to, it's safe to consume. And foot and mouth disease is not the same as hand foot and mouth disease is what we hear in humans. I do get that question a lot. Um, symptoms are very similar in humans, but, but they're not the same virus. Uh, so foot and mouth disease, what we're talking about only affects animals. But um, some of the signs, uh, honestly, the signs are, are pretty ambiguous. Um, there, it can be anything from drooling. You can get, the big thing is blisters or vesicles on the feet, uh, in the mouth, or on the teats of the female cattle. Um, drooling, lameness, fever. Honestly, these are very, these are really ambiguous signs that can be, uh, the same signs that we see in common diseases uh, in cattle, such as vesicular stomatitis, bovine viral diarrhea, or BBD, um, foot rot, a lot of these really common diseases show the same, same signs as foot and mouth disease. So um, one of the big takeaways from that is veterinarians are specifically trained that if we see any of these vesicular diseases in uh in our ruminants, so cattle, sheep, or goats, or swine, we're required to report that to our state veterinarian because we need to make sure that it isn't something something bad like foot and mouth disease. And so it's really important for producers to have that relationship with their veterinarian. So if they do see something odd, that it gets reported and we, we find that out as quickly as we can. Now, seeing pictures pictures of this in our textbooks or online or just reading about it is one thing, but being on the ground like you were, what, what did you learn about the disease that you didn't already know or, or wasn't quite expecting uh, when you actually got to see the disease in person? Oh, I, well, I just, I didn't know what to expect, honestly, Lane. I mean, uh, foot and mouth disease is, is just, just this big um this big disease that we as veterinarians are like, we're just super concerned about uh, period, but seeing it in the animals, um, I think the the big thing I learned was how pervasive it is once it, once animals are already infected. And uh, I also realized, I mean, we, I think we all know that cattle are very hardy animals and they, they can, um, they can go through a lot of, illness or, uh, you know, advanced disease before they even show what's going on. So some of the cattle we saw um, that were infected with foot and mouth disease, they had these blisters on their tongue where like, honestly, the, the, the top layer of their tongue just completely sloughed off and they're still out there eating grass. And like, it just, it just blew my mind that they were, uh, that they were eating 
when I know that that's got to be incredibly painful. And so um, I think seeing uh, what the animals look like in advanced stages was really was really interesting to me also. Um, I think the other thing that I that I learned there uh, and through like my training prior to going was um, understanding carrier states. And so these carrier, I mean, we have carrier uh, animals in different diseases like anaplasmosis or trichomoniasis. Those animals aren't outwardly sick, but they're carrying the bacteria or the virus inside them. But uh, cattle can become a carrier for up to three and a half years and African buffalo can be carriers for up at least five years. And so it also affects how Uganda tries to, uh, like there's no way that they can eradicate foot and mouth disease because they have these carrier animals. And so it really changes the way that they're able to manage their, uh, manage their livestock population. But um, they were still able to do it in a way that the producers could still sell their animals, sell their milk. And uh, that was really interesting to me. Very similar to brucellosis and our uh, bison and elk populations and for the yep. ranchers and what we call the designated surveillance area in Montana. Uh, for our listeners, we have uh, a line that goes through the state based on counties that uh, were elk or bison from Yellowstone National Park, which are positive for brucellosis. So all the all the cattle in there, they have to be tested. Uh, they have to be uh, uh, blood tests throughout the year if they're going to be monitored or, or moved. It's it's quite an expense uh, for the state and for producers just so Montana can have a split status for most of the state to be brucellosis free. And that's just brucellosis. And you're never going to eradicate that out of the wild population of, of, of elk and, and bison on the ungulate level. So uh, I, I see how that obviously it's not going to go away. FMD, mm-hmm. as you mentioned in Uganda there. Um, but then we have that, I mentioned for our producers with uh, brucellosis uh, positive areas and wildlife, you know, that's an economic cost on them, but we're able to continue that trade. But with FMD, obviously that would have had a huge economic impact uh, for you. I mean, we don't think of Uganda <laughs> a lot of the time when we're thinking of beef production and exports, but how did that impact their beef uh, beef economy? Oh, uh, so while we were there during that outbreak, they actually had a, they imposed a total quarantine on any animal movement and even animal products. So uh, within that district, uh, no producer was able to sell animals unless it was directly to slaughter. Uh, the the dairies that were there, uh, they did have special provisions where they were still able to sell their milk, but they had to sell their, like they had a very specific way that they delivered their milk and and pasteurized it right away so that it couldn't spread uh, to, you know, via, uh, to to other farms via the milk. So the producers, it was really, uh, it was really hard on them because cattle act as their uh, currency almost. And that's their symbol of wealth. And that's how they make money to purchase food for their families. And, Uh, It was very difficult for a lot of these uh, smaller ranches to do that. And so, um, again, if if we're, you know, if we think about what would happen in the U.S., uh, I guess we could we can look at the recent example in South Africa where they stopped movement of all cattle during their recent foot and mouth disease outbreak for three weeks. And uh, I mean, our livestock industry, not just cattle, I mean, sheep and uh, swine 
how many animals do we have on wheels every day? And um, I mean, that that's part of the response if foot and mouth disease does get to the US is we are gonna have a stop movement for at least 72 hours. And uh, I think um, people within the, within the ag industry understand how difficult that's gonna be, but I think that's gonna be uh, pretty jarring to people outside the industry who don't understand that. Well, and that moves in to kind of my next question is the impact that this would have on, on U.S. cattle production and movement. But I think we look back to 2003, the, the famed uh, cow that stole Christmas with that uh, bovine that came from Canada into the United States uh, po- that tested positive for bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I won't use the, the media name because I, I, I think that just puts a bad light on, on beef and on cattle production. So BSE. Yes. Um, uh, that 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 impact i mean was felt until just a few years ago in terms of trade and of course that was a uh a, a, a canadian origin a slaughtered in the u.s cow uh how, how can we learn from that oh yeah that was i think that's a great lesson because yeah that was um and that wasn't even an animal like you said was it it wasn't uh it didn't originate in the u.s and we still had battled uh trade issues for years and years uh i think um the reality is is foot and mouth disease is going to be way worse than that because of all the different species that it that it affects and so uh if an if foot and mouth disease is even mentioned in north america i think that our our uh trade exports are going to stop immediately because all those other, I mean, uh, this, it gets complicated, right? So it goes to, um, so the, it used to be the, the OIE, the World Organization for Animal Health. Now they changed it to, uh, WAHO, W-A-H-O. Um, they have specific, uh, designations for countries dealing with FMD. And so the, the biggest or the, the most valued, uh, status is free is fmd free without vaccination which is what we have right now and so if we uh what that does is basically allows us to export uh freely to countries who accept our who who accept our product but if there's a there's a mention of foot and mouth disease in in north america or the united states all of that's going to stop and uh like we we all understand how important the export market is to the cattle well cattle and livestock industries so that's going to be pretty devastating um and proving like if foot and mouth disease is in the u.s uh there are a number of steps that we have to do to prove that we don't have it anymore and that can honestly take years so the the foot and mouth disease outbreak that happened in the uk back in uh 2001 I think um, that took it took four to five years for trade to get back to where it was prior to the outbreak. And the UK is much smaller than than us. And we, I mean, the amount of animals we have compared to what the UK had back at that time is, uh, I mean, we just have so many more animals. Um, so it's going to be. Uh, if foot and mouth disease gets here, it's going to be very challenging, one, to control it once it gets here, but then two, to prove and test that we don't have the disease so that we can get back to trading. It's going to take years. 
And I was re- reading that the impact on the protein sector could be 14 to $160 billion, depending on the, the, the time of proving that, that the disease has been eradicated or vaccines have been put in place. So that, that leads into what happens to cattle the cattle population and, and the beef supply. Obviously, we're going to see a backlog because, or we're not going to be able to export this product. That that's terrifying because we know what that will will do to the markets. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there are a lot of people who have been working for decades on the re, on the the, re, the the response for if foot and mouth disease gets into the U.S. And what it's uh, it the USDA. Uh, so the United States Department of Agriculture has a uh, foreign animal disease preparedness and response plan for a lot of these, what we call transboundary diseases or foreign animal disease. Uh, so foot and mouth diseases on that high path avian influenza that uh, is going is wreaking havoc across North America right now that we have a plan for that. So diseases like that, we have a plan in place for how we're going to test, how we're going to try to manage it. Um, so USDA, our government uh, officials, our state veterinarians or state animal health officials across the country, um, they're always they're always preparing for this. We uh, there are a number of, of state uh, state vets offices who do um, mock outbreaks. So uh, they they pretend that an outbreak is happening and then they go through what are we going to do to transport these animals? What are we going to do to uh, communicate between offices, between states. How are we going to get down to, you know, the local veterinarian, the local producer? How do we get them involved? There's a lot of work that's already been done and a lot of protocols that are already in place. But uh, the reality is, is it's going to be challenging regardless of how much we prepare for it. So I think um, the big thing, at least from, from all the workshops that I've been working on, including in Uganda, it's it's that collaboration. It's the collaboration between the government officials, the, the state animal, the state veterinarians, the local veterinarians, um, the producers, the, the diagnostic lab. It, there's, we have to have constant communication to make sure we're all on the same page. And uh, I think that's where producers can really um, step up and really try to uh, be proactive in preparing for something like this. So how are some of the countries, uh, obviously you're very familiar with Uganda, but what, what are some countries doing to uh, prevent the spread, to get it back in line? Obviously, we've talked about uh, FMD with vaccine and those different statuses, but uh, is there really much a country can do once it's done? And then, then, then we'll talk about what countries are doing to keep it out. But w- w- when we talk about the communication, how how vital is it, especially with these countries that uh, aren't as sophisticated when it comes to traceability standards? Yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, it's uh, I mean the infrastructure that they that different countries have and the support they have for uh, outbreaks like this. Um, we're very fortunate in the United States because we have a really robust. Uh, food safety system we have a robust uh like animal health system we're able to track a lot of what we do from farm to fork as a lot of our uh as i mean that's what we're we discuss not just in a marketing term but just in an animal health and food safety aspect but uh what i noticed when we were in uganda is just um the amount of uh government help that that they could put towards 
identifying these outbreaks and testing and trying to uh, get people to come in and vaccinate if they needed to, it was very difficult for them. And so their outbreaks, um, theoretically, I mean, they, they lasted a lot longer than they could because they didn't have that support system. And so I do think that's one advantage that the United States does have is we do have that support system. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not going to be strained because we noticed uh, in the, the current, the high path avian influenza outbreak, even with that support system in place, we still ran out of people to try to go and test because obviously if, you know, that one person goes to the farm potentially is uh, uh, exposed, they have to wait a certain number of days before they can go to the next farm. And so that's going to be challenging, but um, I think the U.S. has a little bit better support system for that. And uh, I think that, I mean, it leads to um, understanding how we have one of the safest food supplies in, in the world, honestly. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting comparing the two. Now, obviously, in the headlines right now is Australia and their measures that they are doing to prevent the introduction of FMD, and especially as we see the tourists coming over, uh, Bali is kind of one of the hot spots there in, in Indonesia where, where uh, FMD is currently at. Australia uh, being very proactive in that case. Uh, what what is their what are measures are they putting in place? Because I guess that, that that's a question is how how can a tourist or a person introduce FMD? That somebody that, that may be a question somebody asks. Oh sure. So foot and mouth disease. Um, in addition, like from animal to animal, it can spread. So it can be spread via aerosol. So similar to like any of our respiratory diseases, but it can also be um, direct contact. So saliva, uh, blood can be that that's how it can spread but foot and mouth disease um the virus is actually uh depending on i guess it depends on heat and humidity but it can be quite stable on different products and so many countries including the united states uh, have very strict rules on what is able to come in and so um, if anybody has traveled outside the country and you come back in we have these uh, customs forms that cbp or that's the u.s customs and border protection um, they require everybody to declare any uh, contact with livestock, any contact, and I, I would add any contact with wildlife because we learned about wildlife being reservoirs. So if you go on a safari, you could potentially be exposed to that virus and you don't want to bring that back. Um, so declaring any livestock or visits to farms, you also wanted to, you also are required to declare any fresh fruits, vegetable, food, anything like that. Um, because viruses such as foot and mouth disease and then other diseases like African swine fever, that can get carried on and that could be a really easy way to bring that in. Um, the other thing to think about when, uh, about viruses or any of these foreign animal diseases coming in is it can also be on your shoes, your clothing, uh, on your suitcase, um, anything like that. So some of the precautions that I took when I went to Uganda and came back, I took clothes that I knew that I wasn't gonna bring back so when I was on those farms, I wore specific clothes and I left them in Africa. Like I didn't, I didn't even bring them back. And uh, I declared everything when I got back. Um, I made sure that CBP, CBP um, looked, I mean, I wanted them to look through my stuff. I wanted them to make sure that I was doing everything right. Uh, they have uh, foot washes that you can clean your shoes on. 
Um, so those are some, some different aspects of how foreign animal diseases can get in. And so I don't know if anybody, I'm sure somebody heard about, um, it was a person getting fined thousands of dollars for bringing a Big Mac or something like that into Australia, I believe. But that's why, like, we want people to realize the consequences of bringing in fresh food or, I mean, even uh, like beef jerky, like something like that from a country that has one of those devastating diseases could really wreak havoc on the United States. So when we look at the steps that what the U.S. is doing, you you mentioned uh, uh, customs and everything at airports trying to prevent FMD um, how, what, what other steps are, are taking place at ports or, or, or cause you, you, especially on African swine fever, you read about the beagle yeah. brigades and everything. Does yeah. that correlate over to the same thing with FMD as we look at, since it's it, honestly some of the same, um, uh, vectors that could, that could bring that disease in? Yeah, absolutely. So those beagles, uh, super important to finding all those, uh, not just food, but even, um, if people are trying to bring in, uh, invasive species. So that's, and that includes, you know, birds, reptiles, any type of animal, but also plants. I mean, I think, uh, I'm, I'm obviously, uh, in tune with a lot of the animal diseases, but there are a lot of plant diseases that could come in and really devastate our ag, like our, our fruits and our crops. So finding any of those plants and dirt, um, those beagles are really important. Uh, some of the things that happen when, um, when animals are, when live animals are brought in, uh, the USDA has veterinarians who are, they have at these ports, they make those animals go through a quarantine. And so that time frame where uh, they're looking for any diseases that might pop up, they get tested for c- certain diseases. A lot of animals actually have to have a veterinary certification prior to even getting on the boat or the plane. And so they get tested for diseases prior to even getting onto the transport device to get to the United States. So there's a lot of testing and a lot of uh, uh, clinical, like monitoring for those clinical signs that I talked about. Um, We're really paying attention to all those animals coming in to try to make sure that again, nothing, nothing uh, bad is going to, is going to come in and get spread to any of our, um, any, any of our farms. I think, and I didn't mention this prior when we were talking about um, CBP regulations, the other thing uh, we talked about quarantine, but humans can also quarantine themselves. And so when I came back from Africa, uh, they recommended that I stay a 10 day quarantine from when I left the farm in Africa to when I was able to see any susceptible species. And so when I came back, I stayed, I actually skipped a conference because we had live animals there. And I was like, I don't even want to, uh, risk it. And so this is, if you're traveling out into another country and um, you can check online on what disease, on what diseases, what uh, livestock diseases could be present there. But if there is something like foot and mouth disease or uh, African swine fever or something like that, make sure you quarantine yourself when you get back. You don't want to go, you know, if I had my own cattle ranch and I went to, and I I went to uh, the infected herd in Uganda, come home, and I go straight to feeding the cows. That's not that's not a good biosecurity practice. And so quarantining ourselves also applies. Now, we, we look even to the current avian influenza. The, the media loves to take headlines and, 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 and really scare consumers. 
And the same could be said back what happened in 2003 with the BSC case. Um, I, I guess uh, that's kind of a twofold question. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, checkoff funded research and tools in place uh, to be able to let the beef industry and cattle producers go out and advocate and tell what is actually going on to combat how we, what we know the mainstream media will do. Uh, but but I guess let's talk about that, that. That'll be one area, what we do on the media side and the PR side if FMD does make it to, to, to North America and, or the United States. But uh, what, what are the government and state protocols that will go into place? I know you mentioned the, the shutdown, no cattle moving for 72 hours. So what, what will the government on the state and federal response look like? And then what will the the uh, the cattle NCBA response be to help uh, tell consumers that, hey, the beef supply is still safe? Uh, that's a great question. I think that's the biggest thing that we're really preparing for is just, is that reaction to the bad news, right? Um, NCBA, our comms team, uh, they work with uh, a, a, a livestock consortium of different groups to make sure that that information is always available and it's ready. Um, it's ready at the drop of a hat. With a, you know, the minute foot and mouth disease happens, they turn that website on, and that's going to be the constant message that we are going to be putting out to make sure the information is the same across species. I think that's going to be really important, making sure there's not ten different stories on what's going to be happening. Uh, it's going to come down to what the USDA, the USDA is going to be in charge of this. Um, so veterinary services, they are going to determine, uh, they're going to enact that, that 72 hours stop movement. Uh, that 72 hours allows that diagnostic testing to happen to make sure that they can trace back where that infection occurs, you know, uh, put that control area, enact that and start, uh, officially start that uh, control process. Um, and honestly, that's what the uh, within, and it also depends on the state. So it's going to be, it's going to depend on the state. Your re, uh, your response in Colorado is going to be different than Texas. It's going to be different than Kentucky. So your state veterinarian is going to be very uh, important to this. And um, I think that's the biggest thing is if you don't already have uh, that relationship with, I mean, your local veterinarian, because they're going to be listening to the state veterinarian. Um, I, I mean, I, I mean, I have, I have all my state vets uh, phone numbers in my, in my phone just in case. And I know that that comes with my, with, with my job, but uh, I think knowing who your state veterinarian is and being on, maybe they have a listserv that uh, you, you get news uh, on a weekly or monthly basis, basis, make sure producers need to make sure that they're on that list so that they can be on top of this information as it's coming out. But I think a lot of it is um, understanding that USDA and the state vet is going to, and the state vet of whichever state that it happens to be in, they're going to be in charge. And that's, uh, that's who we have to um, take a lot of our uh, direction from. Now, obviously, uh, we can always do better on our operations, no matter what it is. And I know that's why the Beef Quality Assurance Program was created, just just to help producers become better cattlemen, better cattle handlers, and and also understand uh, animal health uh, as as well, and how to become better uh, animal. Uh, the animal husbandry aspect uh, of our jobs out in the countryside. So what can producers do to, to not only help prevent FMD, 
but but obviously because we don't have it here in the United States yet, uh, and hopefully it doesn't come here. But we have to be prepared. But what what can producers do to just be better to to limit animal disease uh, uh, as a whole on their operations? Sure, and I think. Uh... So the thing with biosecurity, so biosecurity to me, just in a general sense, it's keeping diseases off, you know, off the farm, away from your animals. Uh, there are a lot of things that our producers are already doing. So things like we talked about quarantining. BQA recommends if you have new animals, say you're bringing a new bull in, quarantine him for 21 to 30 days, get him tested for some different diseases, make sure he's not bringing anything into your herd that could be devastating uh, health-wise or economic-wise. Um, so those are some things that you're already doing. Uh, I think a lesson I learned from the farmers in uh, Uganda is, um, I mean, those farmers, if, the, if one herd was sick, the other farmers came and tried to help and try to figure out what was going on. The unfortunate thing is they took foot and mouth disease back to their farms, which is how the outbreak spread. But that lesson, I, you know, as I was looking at how producers here in the United States uh, collaborate and help each other out like we think about brandings like if you have a lot of people coming into the into a branding um you know ask people to have clean clothes on clean boots on uh you know um making sure that they're using uh gloves if if they're doing like the dirty work like castrating or anything like that uh thinking about um how you're cleaning equipment between animals. So like we, uh, BQA just uh, up, re up or redid our transportation modules. And so we have a whole thing about cleaning out trailers. I know it's a, it's a, it's a dirty task and it's a tedious task, but it's really important when you're going from one class of animals to another or from one farm to another. And so anywhere that that, um, basically where saliva or poop can get on, we need to be paying attention to how to, how to clean that. Uh, but that's where uh, BQA, we have a daily biosecurity plan that uh, walks, through, um, walks through everything, all the different categories that a producer could be paying attention to when they're developing a, a biosecurity plan. Anything from animal movement, people movement, uh, like are, do you have, um, Oh, I guess feed movement. Things can get uh, things can get transmitted on feed. So this daily biosecurity plan, um, we developed it as a a step. It's a I mean it's record keeping, and it's part of your it's part of your herd health plan. It's part of risk management. I mean biosecurity we call it an insurance program. So like uh, you work and work on it, and you hope that you never have to use it, but you're always prepared in case it's there, and. Uh, our daily biosecurity plan provides on this day, these are all the risks that my current herd, my current operation is, uh, I guess, is trying to manage or mitigate. And um, it's a step, uh, it's a step in between an enhanced biosecurity plan. And so um, one of the other things that the, the US, that USDA has helped pushed forward is what we call our secure food supply plans. And we have a secure beef supply that's specific to beef cattle. Um, dairy has a secure milk supply. Sheep and wool have their own supply plan. Pork has their own supply plan. Each of the livestock industries has their own supply plan. But what these secure beef supply plans do um, is it really, it provides a continuity of business plan. And so continuity, continuity of business. So 
if a foot and mouth disease outbreak happens, um, basically the, the livestock owners that are not within that control zone or not infected can still do business. And so they can, they, uh, if they have this enhanced biosecurity plan in place uh, and provide that to their state veterinarian, they're able to move their cattle, they're able to move their milk, they're able to continue business so that the entire, uh, you know, ag industry is not stopped for, for longer than that 72 hours, but it, it's localized to that regional area and uh, the regional area that is infected. And so, um, our, bio, our BQA biosecurity plan is a step uh, to building up to that enhanced biosecurity plan. That enhanced biosecurity plan has more details on like disinfect, cleaning and disinfection or having a line of separation. So that's like that border around your operation on where like, if you need to protect your operation, these are the borders where people cannot cross. And so um, we really worked with, BQA worked with the Secure Beef Supply group to make sure that our plans are very similar, the language is similar, and we're really trying to help producers not feel, uh, I guess, daunted to make these biosecurity plans because it's really important uh, from an everyday disease, like we talked about with BVD, but also if foot and mouth disease came in, came into the country, uh, it's really important for all of us, uh, all of us to uh, have this, or I guess, prepare for uh, prepare for something like this with biosecurity plans. We encourage people to go through these with their veterinarian. Again, veterinarian, I mean, we're, we're trained to do this. We're trained to look at uh, the big picture. We're trained, uh, we're trained to look at all the intricacies of how diseases can get on and off your farm. So it's really important to work on, uh, to have that relationship with your veterinarian. Um, all the information, I mean, any of the BQA biosecurity plan can be found on our website, so bqa.org, and the secure beef supply plan can also be found online, and it's securebeef.org. Now, as you mentioned, you don't want this to be daunting for producers, but it needs to be taken so seriously. I mean, you, you look at what happens when a tuberculosis case occurs. Uh, we see that a lot in South Dakota. Uh, yep. I think we had one case uh, in Montana last year. And that ranch and the surrounding ranches are shut down. No movement. And that yep. includes the neighbors that border them. Uh, that impacts when those calves can ship. You might not be able to even get your calves shipped on time or that heartbreaking scenario where that herd is depopulated just because of a case of TB. And, right. and so we always think, well, that's never going to happen to me. But it also proves the importance of that traceability system that's in place with our bangs tags and how fast that the state departments can react along with, with, with the USDA. But when we look at if one case of FMD is in the United States, it's not just your neighbor a, count, a county or two away that gets shut down. It's the entire industry. And, and uh -huh. I just I, I want to stress again uh, that that online resource and why folks should be BQA certified or BQT certified. I know we're, that's rolling out as well. But again, uh, why, why this certification and, and why they should go check out that biosecurity website and just talk with their local veterinarian about what they can do better just, just to have a, a, a healthier, cleaner operation. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, BQA's foundation is continuous improvement. We're always trying to improve. We can always be better. We're always challenging ourselves to, 
you know, we're looking at the newest research, we're looking at the newest guidelines, trying to make sure that we're providing that those those same guidelines back to our producers. And uh, I think that's where our producers, I mean, um, we're, we're always trying to add new information. And BQA is really, uh, I mean, we talked about it before, it's really preventive health. And so anything from nutrition to vaccinations to uh, grazing management, all of that is prevention. Uh, and not just prevention of diseases, but prevention of poor management, like um, it all builds on itself. And so I think that's a really key part to being BQA certified is you get all of that foundational information. And what we hope that people get through through a lot of our resources is, you know, maybe you see something. Um, we actually have a biosecurity specific module you can go online to BQA.org and go through. Uh, but maybe you see something in there and be like, hey, I hadn't thought about, um, you know, maybe this type of vaccine for my herd. I'm going to go talk to my veterinarian and see if it's something that I need to be paying attention to. Uh, maybe it's um, you learn about a new, uh, I don't know, a new feed or maybe a new disinfection protocol or something like that. And I know that's, I mean, I nerd out on things like that, but hopefully <laughs> some other people do too. Uh, but hopefully it's an easy way, you know, maybe you find a new way to or a newer way to, to have a, a practical way to, in, to implement these biosecurity plans. And that's what we hope, um, like, these are not prescriptive. These are very, uh, these plans are customizable to your operation. And biosecurity, uh, I mean, it needs to be practical. It can't be, um, it can't be so strict that you're, you're unable to go through your daily activities. And so um, I think that's also where having outside eyes come in on the operation is really important. Uh, I think they can provide a new a new view to your operation. Be like, hey, what if you tried this? What if you tried this? And so, not just your veterinarian. Maybe you have an extension agent, or um, uh, like your state your BQA state coordinator. Maybe you know having somebody trusted that comes in and just be like, hey, what could I do to improve? And so that's what BQA is all about: continuous improvement. Um, from a biosecurity standpoint, I think uh, one of the lessons I I heard from a colleague, uh, Dr. Nick Lyons. He said that biosecurity is a verb, which means it's always changing. Uh, so your biosecurity plan now is not going to be the same as it is six months from now. Um, and so I really encourage people that if once they get that biosecurity plan written down to really reevaluate that, reevaluate re that at least once a year, because things are going to change. Maybe you go from a cow calf herd to a seed stock operation. Those are going to be completely different. Uh, biosecurity risks. So um, you really need to be paying attention to this on a on a at least an annual basis basis. But um, we're we're hopefully providing you those tools that make it a little bit easier and at least gives you a framework to work from. Well, again, th these are so important, and I and I just want to reiterate too that BQA is voluntary. It's a voluntary program that you can participate in, but it's a beef checkoff funded as well. Uh, the dollars that we pay into not only beef promotion, education, and research, this is a part of that promotion, and it's a part of research as well. And it's a way to make sure that the beef supply chain and consumers continue to enjoy beef and understand how healthy and safe it is. Uh, because if it does hit the U.S. mainland, this could be a horrible 
uh, PR crisis. As I mentioned, we think of 2003. We see what's going on with avian influenza, so much uh, misinformation that the media puts out, and and the tools that are in place that the checkoff-funded research and tools that NCBA's checkoff-funded programs will have in place just to go to bat uh, 24-7 in this extreme case if it does hit the mainland. And we hope it doesn't, but we have to be yes. prepared. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's the, again, it comes down to collaboration. We all need to, all of us at every, every sector of the beef industry, um, every level of the beef industry, we all need to be prepared. And I think uh, the only way, the only way that we're going to get out of a foot and mouth disease outbreak, if it, if it makes, if it makes it to the U S is, is working together because that's uh, it's going to be, it's going to be complicated. It's going to be, challenging and um teamwork is the only way that it's gonna work out and uh, a lot of heartache out in the countryside (laughs) along the way too um and again 1929 is when uh uh fmd was eradicated from the united states and uh yeah, that that was uh, that was not a great time for producers in the countryside that lost their herds to to make sure right. that eradication takes place. So there's so much that we can do to make sure that the disease remains out of the United States and North America as well. Uh, 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 Dr. Herman, anything else that you would just like to share with us before I let you get back to your day? Uh, I just appreciate the conversation. I think this is uh, it's important, and it I mean it doesn't have to be as big as foot and mouth disease. It can be as you know it's it's that everyday your everyday steps that you're taking to protect your animals, protect your um, to pre- protect your operation. Those steps will apply to the bigger picture, and I think that's uh, looking at it in uh, small steps and in small increments uh, makes it a little less daunting. And um, I guess I just uh, I really encourage people to to have it have that resource team, that veterinarian, extension agent, state coordinator, anybody to come help them, not just on biosecurity plan, but just a herd health plan in general. But uh, I think all of this can, um, I mean, looking at it, uh, how the information overlaps with herd health, but also if you develop an emergency action plan, your biosecurity and the biosecurity plan information directly applies to an emergency action plan. So I think it's uh, looking at looking to see how the effort, when you're working on one thing, it actually applies to multiple aspects of your operation. But uh, the producer education team here at NCBA is always looking for ways to to help the producer uh, help them help their make their operations run more efficient, make it go smoother, keep their animals healthy. Uh, I mean, that's who we're, that's who we're here for. And so if there's any questions, um, or any ideas that people have, I'm happy to, uh, happy to talk with them about that. Uh, I did, I guess I did want to mention, um, the same group that took me to Uganda, we're actually having a virtual conference where producers are even invited if they're, if they're able to, uh, it's a CE event, an online CE event that's happening in December, um, uh, but it is hosted by Texas A&M and EUFMD. It does cost, uh, it does have a, a fee to participate, but we would, uh, would really like to have some producer participation. So if anybody's interested, they can contact me. Uh, my email is jherman at beef.org. But uh, collaboration, that's what we're, that's what we're here for. Well, again, I think we had a very good conversation of a very, 
uh, scary uh, uh, possibility, but biosecurity and collaboration will be key in preventing it or helping contain it as well. Again, uh, Julie Herman, DVM, uh, one of the in-house veterinarians there at NCBA. And as she said, more information can be found at bqa.org. Thank you so much for joining us and, and uh, sharing uh, your firsthand experiences with foot and mouth disease and, and all the efforts that are uh, going on, not only here in the United States, but uh, worldwide at helping prevent and, and contain this, this horrible disease. Thank you, Lane. With that, friends, we will conclude today's conversation on the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland. Stay safe out there, friends. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.